1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Lonnie Watson. Lonnie is research fellow and associate faculty in the philosophy faculty at the University of Oxford. Her research specializations include epistemology, social epistemology, virtue theory, and the theory of rights. Her new book has just been published with Routledge. It is titled The Right to Know, Epistemic Rights and Why We Need Them. Now, we often talk as if individuals have entitlements to certain kinds of information, like medical test results Um, the voting records of their political representatives, for example, maybe crime statistics in the neighborhood that they live in, and the like. Um, We also talk as if these entitlements entail duties on the part of others to provide the relevant information. And furthermore, we often talk as if the individual's entitlement to these sorts of information or this kind of information also entails a range of protections for individuals, against manipulation or misinformation, deception, and the like. Now, despite the fact that these ideas are, are kind of commonplace, um, there's surprisingly little in the philosophical literature about the nature and the contours of these relevant entitlements. Lonnie Watson seeks to remedy this. In her new book, The Right to Know, she develops a conception of epistemic rights, These are a distinct class of entitlements which nonetheless fit neatly into the existing landscape of rights theory. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but why don't we begin, as we normally do, uh, with our guest.
0: Hi, Lani. Hi, Bob. I'm very well, thank you, and really uh, delighted to be here.
1: Well, I'm delighted to have you here. Um, you know, we usually start these interviews off uh, with the author saying a few things about themselves. Why don't we uh, not break uh, that trend? Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure.
0: So um, so uh, you can tell from the accent, I'm a Brit. Uh, I'm from the south coast of England, from Southampton. Um, I've lived in a few different places in the UK. I've spent a bit of time in the US. Uh, I've lived mostly in Edinburgh for the past 10 years. Uh, which is where I am just now on a beautiful, sunny, warm day. Um, but I'm actually mm-hmm. based at the moment at the University of Oxford as of last year, uh, like you said. So, um, yeah, I'm very much an epistemologist uh, and I work, as you said, in the areas of sort of social, political, and virtue epistemology and in the rights theory literature. Um, and I think really uh, I'm an epistemologist uh, because. As it turns out, I'm just very interested in the epistemic dimension of our lives, really. Um, I usually introduce myself and my research by saying that it's all about questions and questioning, uh, because I'm fascinated by questions. And I think the underlying reason for that fascination is because um, of the important and central role that I think questions play in our um, everyday epistemic interactions and exchanges but times when we're you know, giving each other information or trying to acquire information that we wouldn't otherwise have. So questions are, I think, one of, if not the most important epistemic tool that we have, um, because they allow us to get at information and knowledge that we might not otherwise have. They give us a kind of epistemic autonomy and power. So really, I'm just very interested in and concerned with how we can work with each other in our epistemic communities and flourish within um, our epistemic environments. So um, I think the epistemic is really a vital component in all of these uh, different settings that we find ourselves in, um, in public and in private life. And I'm really passionate about and just dedicated to trying to protect it. so, yeah, like I say, I think uh, my work in the field of social um, political and virtue epistemology um, is, I think, part of perhaps a somewhat newer wave of epistemology, which has emerged over maybe the past 30 to 40 years. Um, yeah. These are the areas of epistemology that I think are basically um, interested in connecting the abstract concepts that we talk about, knowledge and information and understanding To the situations that we actually encounter them in in our lives and that's the version of epistemology that I identify with and I'm passionate about Um, and that's really why I am an epistemologist why I continue in the profession. Um, I didn't actually study epistemology as an undergraduate and I think if I had I might have been put off for life (laughs) but um, (laughs) but this is the uh, version of epistemology that we have on the scene now and it's just a very different picture I think from what it was even fifteen years ago, um, so the book is essentially my attempt to paint something new and interesting into that picture.
1: Well, that's fabulous. You know, uh, just as a, I guess a, I don't know if I count as an old timer in the profession, but maybe I'm getting close to it. Um, you know, it was um, one of the real, um, maybe disorientation is too strong, but one of the sort of disorienting things about my own time as a graduate student was. Um, you know, having, having come at some topics in epistemology by way of pragmatism, um, to get to graduate school and find out that, um, uh, epistemology, um, at the time at least was about, um, you know, f- fake barn facades and red balls at the end of, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, where you had to do a lot of work, um, uh, sometimes, uh, uh, overcome a lot of obstacles even to get at the normative issues that were somewhere hidden, embedded in, um, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, some of the examples or whatever. Um, it was, it was very puzzling to me. I was like, I thought epistemology was about a kind of conduct <laughs> <and> <laughs> our relations to others and all the rest. And, um, this is all about, um, you know, Jones having a $5 bill in his pocket. And so I, I thought the whole thing was very puzzling. But um, so good to see that things well, are. Thank
0: goodness um, you persevered. Yeah. <laughs> and <obviously>, I'm just <laughs> grateful because that's why epistemology is what it now is, and, uh, which is, yeah, where I love to be and love to think.
1: Well, that's fabulous. Um, so why don't we um, begin uh, talking about the book, um, which is really fabulous. I recommend it to uh, anybody who's listening uh, to the podcast. It's um, really sharp and, and clear and precise, and uh, it's got a lot of virtues. Um, but um, why don't we begin at the very beginning, which is the introduction, where I think you do a very nice job of um, setting up um, some of the stakes, we might think, of uh, uh, of, of the issues that you're interested in um, you lay out a, a, a very vivid uh, real-world example that you've returned to um, you know various important junctures throughout the book this has to do with um, Purdue Pharma and uh, OxyContin. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that case and how it sort of animates the, the project and the
0: analysis? Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and thanks for the, um, the kind words on the book. I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Sure. Um, so yeah, the central case uh, that I set up in the introduction and I draw on throughout the book uh, alongside a bunch of other cases, but this is really the one I keep coming back to, is like you say, the case of the uh, ph- pharmaceutical giant Purdue Pharma. In the context of the US opioid uh, crisis. Um, And I think the case in and of itself provides ample illustration of the very real and very significant harms caused uh, by epistemic rights violations. Um, So to give you a sense of the case, in May 2007, Purdue Frederick Company, Inc., an affiliate of Purdue Pharma, uh, along with three of uh, the top executives, were ordered to pay fines totaling uh, uh, $634 million after pleading guilty to criminal charges of misbranding in relation to the uh, opioid-based painkiller OxyContin. Uh, So among other things, the company falsely claimed that OxyContin was less addictive than other opioids and less subject to abuse. And Purdue Pharma, for context, is owned by the controversial uh, Sackler family. So, in its aggressive marketing of OxyContin, Purdue made liberal use of fabricated information about the addictive properties of the painkiller, and repeatedly issued false claims about the effectiveness of the drug, the likelihood of harmful withdrawal symptoms, and the potential for abuse. And Purdue armed its sizable sales force with uh, kinds of graphics and charts and all sorts of information, which downplayed the addictive properties of OxyContin and they even trained salespersons to respond to concerns uh, by medical professionals or others um, uh, by conveying the false message that the risk of addiction was less than 1% from the drug. Um, So through its aggressive marketing of OxyContin, Purdue Pharma essentially controlled the extensive and systematic spread of false and misleading information throughout the U.S. medical community uh, for the purpose of profit. So in the 2007 trial, uh, the company executives were forced to admit that Purdue had marketed OxyContin, and this is a quote, with the intent to defraud or mislead. Um, And I've got a a quote from the U.S. attorney, uh, a statement, John Brownlee, Um, which I think kind of sums up the end of that case quite well. He said, uh, even in the face of warnings from healthcare professionals, the media and members of its own sales force, that OxyContin was being widely abused and causing harm to our citizens, Purdue, under the leadership of its top executives, continued to push a fraudulent marketing campaign. In the process, scores died as a result of OxyContin abuse, and an even greater number of people became addicted to OxyContin, a drug that Purdue led many to believe was safer, less abusable, and less addictive than other pain medications on the market. Mm-hmm. So you can see the deliberate spread of false and misleading information is basically central to the Purdue Pharma case. And uh, in my um, in my approximation, it amounts to a serious and harmful violation Of epistemic rights, including the epistemic rights of many of the medical professionals targeted by Purdue, and those uh, rights of the patients that they serve. Uh, So like I say, that's kind of the central case. It's one of many um, discussed in the book, but I think it gives a really vivid um, picture of just how kind of close the relationship is between epistemic rights violations and very real, very serious widespread and systematic harms.
1: Right. Fabulous. Can I, can I just ask a quick question about the case? Mm. Um, I think I, I, I think I know the answer is just going to be both, right? But I, I w- one of the things that, you know, really um, the, the case, um, as you lay it out in the book and as you've just described it so nicely, um, got me thinking about, um, you know, sort of the, the, there are two parties that are being defrauded, one fairly directly um, and one indirectly. And the, the public is the indirect, the, 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 the more directly defrauded are the people who are prescribing this stuff. Right. <laughs> um, and it seemed to me that the indirectly defrauded are the ones who are being harmed the most. So I thought that that was an interesting <laughs> feature of the case, that the the victims are the ones who are sort of one step removed in the causal chain from the actual act of, of fraud. Does
0: that seem right? Yeah, that's interesting observation. I think... Um in one sense that's right um uh and and there's an interesting question which i think uh you know maybe we'll we'll circle back to around why yeah. that is and i think that's got a lot to do with uh, authority epistemic authority and where that comes from and sort of almost by taking it two steps through a doctor to a patient you almost accrue greater epistemic authority and therefore the kind of opportunity to kind of do more widespread harm is potentially greater um on the other hand the the marketing campaign sort of was really extensive for, for oxy content um i mean probably people will remember it or know what i'm talking about but um mm-hmm. you know really you know well uh funded advertisements in you know on the telly and in um you know, public magazines and so on that were uh, promoting oxycontin directly, uh, directly to right. um, the public and to people who might be suffering from pain. So, in a sense, it was sort of using that those channels of the media and through you know very deliberate press releases that were going to doctors, but were also just intended for the you know consumption of the public at large. That was a part of the part of the campaigning, I suppose, was directed in, at the public right. itself. Yeah.
1: Right, right, right. You know, in the States, you know, there are some places in the world that have the good sense to um, regulate this sort of thing. But in the States, you know, there's the the way on that television includes um, advertisements for drugs that always end with the ask your doctor about that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah which is just you know it's clear in the context that the, it it ask your doctor is really a, a a legally safe way of saying tell your doctor you want this thing <laughs> yeah yeah um, which uh well yeah so the the case is really interesting for all the, those reasons good um so um uh so i take it that um just to now get into the analysis sure. um i take it that um it's important uh for the view that you defend That um, epistemic rights, um, although they are a distinctive kind of entitlement, um, but you still want to show, and this seems to me to be uh, uh, um, well motivated, uh, that um, epistemic rights um, sort of fit into the familiar categories um, and taxonomies uh, of of rights theory. Now, um, people who are listening, who are familiar with. Uh, The work on on rights, um, I I suppose this is still the case that um, uh, Hofeld is still the touchstone. And if you want a legal thinker and a philosopher who's really into taxonomizing things, (laughs) this is the guy uh, to look at. So um, can you tell us a bit about what epistemic rights are and um, also um, what makes a right um, an epistemic Right.
0: Yeah, great. So put simply, um, epistemic rights are rights concerning epistemic goods, such as information and knowledge and truth and others among them. Um, And I think of these rights as governing the quality, accessibility and distribution of epistemic goods. Um, and, And I think they play an increasingly prominent role in our lives and And often go unnoticed and unprotected. So the more technical definition that I develop in chapter one of the book says that um, an epistemic right is a complex entitlement that provides justification for the performance and prohibition of actions and omissions concerning epistemic goods. Now it's a you know relatively long definition, and so much of chapter one is spent pretty much unpacking every single word in that definition. Um, and there's probably not not time to go through each and every term. But um, as you say, like many rights theorists, I take my lead from the, um, the legal philosopher Wesley Hofeld, who was writing in the early 20th century and has had an incredible staying power, it seems to me. Um, yeah. And he identified these four different senses of the term right so um i imagine listeners may be familiar but for 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 anyone who isn't um he called those privileges claims powers and immunities and i think we can see those different senses of the term right um term right in play in the case of epistemic rights uh with a kind of simple example which i also kind of go back to several times throughout the book so i just just present that now. Uh, imagine that I'm being tested for diabetes by my doctor. Once I've been tested, I have a privileged right to know my blood sugar levels. And that just means that I've got no duty not to know them. Um, but I've also got a claim right to know my blood sugar levels, which means, uh, for example, that I have a right to, uh, say, prevent my doctor from misinforming me about uh, my blood sugar levels and that my doctor has a duty to provide me with the accurate results. Uh, And then in addition, I've got a power right uh, to waive my claim right and thereby not to know my blood sugar levels, I can just ask not to know them. And finally, I've got an immunity right, which uh, protects me from my doctor taking away or altering my claim right to know my blood sugar levels. So of these four senses, the one I'm most interested in with respect to epistemic rights, and this also is following Hofeld, is claim rights. Uh, claim rights are particularly important, I think, because they are social, in essence. They involve other people um, because of the uh, necessary relationship between claims and duties um, that you mentioned right at the, right at the start. You okay. can't have a claim right unless someone else has a duty to fulfill your claim, um, like the doctor in that example. Um, And that means that epistemic duties are central to understanding the nature of epistemic rights. And um, most importantly, as I think we'll probably discuss in a bit, they're important for understanding and identifying when epistemic rights have been violated. Um, So what makes a a right an epistemic right? I mean, you're you're exactly right to uh, kind of Pick up on the point in the book, where I, which I tried to stress, <laughs> and <laughs> hopefully it comes through that um, I, what I want is to establish the kind of status of epistemic rights within the framework of rights theory, so that I'm not talking about um, sort of epistemic rights purely in the epistemic domain. In fact, I want Uh, epistemic rights in the sense that I'm talking about them to be understood as uh, political and legal and moral rights. Uh, So that's not meant to be a kind of additional domain-specific set of rights, although it's possible that that set of rights already exists and there is some work that might suggest that in, in contemporary epistemology, but my interest is in thinking about this as a distinct class of legal and moral rights much like we think of property rights as a distinct class of legal and moral rights and so what makes it a right an epistemic right is just simply the connection to epistemic goods much like a property right is a property right because of the connection to property Um, so it's a kind of fairly simple um way of understanding what epistemic rights are within the context of the broader Landscape of rights theory. Um, but I do do some work in the book to distinguish that between uh, a kind of notion of rights or entitlements within uh, contemporary epistemology that is um, more restricted to uh, the epistemic domain.
1: Right, right.
0: Fabulous. So um, that's very helpful. Um, the next natural
1: question, of course, then, <laughs> right, is about um, the rights holders, uh, the holders of epistemic rights. Um, so here again, sort of two uh, interlinked questions. Um, so um, w- what are the conditions under which one or an entity uh, uh, can can have epistemic rights um, and um, who uh, in fact has them?
0: Right. yeah, exactly. is uh, a natural question in particular because of that framing, um, because sure. really the answer, to um, the first question the simple answer is everyone everyone can have epistemic rights the conditions for uh, being an epistemic right holder are um, in essence the conditions for being a right holder Um, and that's I think an important um, that's an important distinction uh, in contrast to a position that I thought about a lot and you know developed Arguments going back and forth around this idea um, that that uh, you ha- have an epistemic right only if you can have um, an epistemic state. If you like, you can be in an epistemic state. So the relationship between epistemic rights and epistemic, what I call epistemic capacity, the ability mm-hmm. to know, the ability to understand. So. That raises some really interesting questions. It leads to a couple of interesting conclusions around who in general can have epistemic rights, um, including, for example, uh, young children, infants and babies. Um, I talk about that a little bit and um, I conclude that uh, babies, infants can have epistemic, and in fact do have epistemic rights uh, in certain situations um, people find that a slightly counterintuitive claim because it seems like odd to claim that a baby can have a right to know, for example, the results of a blood sugar test um, mm. when they don't have the capacity to know that. Um, but in that case, it's actually useful to draw that case out a little because it highlights the um, nature of the rights themselves, which is that they are to actions rather than to um, goods or states, right? So the baby doesn't have a right to uh, the good of knowledge itself. A baby has a right to uh, the actions of the duty bearer in that case, so the actions of the doctor, say, taking a blood sugar test for a baby. Um, And then uh, we expect that a doctor performs as epistemically, admirably in the case of babies um, than they do in the case of adults. And if they didn't, we would find serious wrong. Um, and part of that wrong would be an epistemic wrong. Mm-hmm. The case of babies and infants, and um, it's also the case in, for example, um, the case of someone with uh, in a long-term uh, coma, They need epistemic proxies, so they need people that are going to stand in for them uh, to defend their epistemic rights and to take on the knowledge or the information on the behalf of the individual. But for me, at least, it's really, really important that we don't strip away uh, rights of any kind, um, including epistemic rights, from uh, individuals on the basis of their capacity. Uh, So I talk a little bit about, um, for example cognitive ageing disorders are often associated with a kind of um, loss or change in epistemic capacity. And I don't want it to be the case. And I don't think it is the case that one should uh, sort of lose epistemic rights and the right to accurate information, the right to others' bearing duties with respect to information that is important or significant to oneself on the basis of the loss of epistemic capacity, uh, what it does mean is that people that are in that situation and um, babies are on the other end of that scale require epistemic proxies. which means we really need good systems and institutions that are going to uphold epistemic rights on the part of uh, individuals who can't sort of protect and defend their own epistemic rights. So hopefully that gives a kind of sense of who can have them. And then, like you said, there's this kind of distinct question about who actually does have them, um, because while everyone can have epistemic rights, we don't all have the same epistemic rights. Um, so what is it that makes it the case that I have a right to know, uh, you know, the results of my blood, sh- blood sugar test and you don't have that right? And so I unpack that a little bit in the um, in the chapter two I talk about um, uh, a right holder having an epistemic right when it is legally or morally permissible to enforce an epistemic duty. And this is where we start to see duties really like playing a central role in the um, theory and the analysis of epistemic rights. So a quick uh, idea of epistemic duties, broadly speaking, an epistemic duty is simply a duty that concerns epistemic goods. Um, So I explore that concept in a little bit more detail um, by looking at different types of epistemic duties. And here I draw inspiration for uh, a basic taxonomy of epistemic duties from Article 19 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Um, So that's the article that says everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. Um, So Article 19 is typically cited as the article um, concerning freedom of expression, which it is, of course, Um, but the article, I think, interestingly covers more than a person's right to the free expression Of ideas and opinions, it also highlights um, a a person's rights to seek, receive and impart information. Um, And these are all epistemic rights and I think they correlate with a basic taxonomy of epistemic duties, which are duties to seek, receive and impart information. Um, And I call that a basic taxonomy because Mm. it provides only a basic frame for the construction of a a more complex and a more complete taxonomy of epistemic duties that might <laughs> come in time. Um, but I think it's nonetheless the frame around which a, a more complete taxonomy can be built. And in fact, that basic taxonomy of three epistemic duties uh, can be immediately doubled to six by noticing that they each comprise both a positive and a negative duty. So right. the positive duty is to seek, receive and impart information and the negative duties not to seek, not to receive, and not to impart information. Um, So again, a right holder has an epistemic right when it is legally or morally permissible to enforce one of these epistemic duties. Um, And I talk a little bit about uh, the different ways in which um, that enforcement or the different forms that that enforcement can take. Right
1: You know, one of the one of the questions that that um, that struck me as I was reading this part of the book, uh, particularly with respect to the, the the former of the two questions we were just uh, discussing the you know um, uh, who can have epistemic rights. Um, you know, I think wisely in the book you try to um, uh, avert um, having to take a stance on the debate between. Will and interest theories uh, in in the rights literature. Yeah. Um, but I guess I'm just wondering. You know, and, and this could be a very short answer because you know uh, uh, I'm just wondering if the the you know the, the the kind of view you take about who can have epistemic rights might not push you in one direction uh, on the will versus interest. Um, it looks as if you know you might be edging towards the, an interest view of rights. Does that sound right, <laughs> or maybe I'm just maybe I'm just I'm 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 you know it's it it doesn't look like you need to to be able if it doesn't look like you need to be able to be a claimant, um, th- then it looks like you know th- some element of the will theory is 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 not on the cards, right?
0: Yeah, I I think that's a fair comment, and you know to some extent in the in the writing of the book, I spent quite a lot of time in them. The Myers of the interest uh, versus theory <laughs> debate—it's um, got a lot of complexity and a lot of um, contributions over the years. So, um, and it, you're being very tactful. <laughs> I'm saying it that way, by the way. <laughs> um, I mean, it's coming from you know coming from a fascinating historical place, I think. Um, but yeah, the um, yeah, it was sort of an interesting result for me that after quite a bit of time in the weeds, as it were, I ended up feeling that i didn't actually need to take a stance because Mm -hmm. because whichever of those theories if you're committed to one or the other um it shouldn't discount the possibility uh that epistemic rights exist and so they should be able to um, be accommodated by one or the other now that being said um i spent probably a bit more time in the interest theory camp and perhaps Mm -hmm. that is actually coming through um, Particularly with respect to that relationship between capacity and rights. Um, so yes, there is. I think there is some truth in uh, truth in what you are saying. What I, you know, what I want to do is to allow for the um, discussion of that discussion really to to be taken up by others <laughs> and, right, in some right. sense, and um, and to see where the chips fall. Because um, yeah, I think probably it. it they might fall on the interest side but I wasn't um, convinced enough in my own reasoning to actually commit in the book and that's why I've sort of and also I'm wanting I'm wanting this to be a theory that kind of transcends that debate to an extent so yeah but I think you're you're onto something there we should talk about that more (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, that's fabulous so it's you know um by the way it's it it you know just uh, traditionally will theorists are going to have a hard time with some of the cases that w- in w- w- with respect to rights um y- y- not strictly epistemic rights but at rights of any kind uh mm-hmm. they're going to have a hard time just y- y- and they do have a hard time sort of explaining pretty intuitive views about um you know w- w- it seems it-, it seems intuitive to talk about um individuals being rights holders uh, of various kinds, even when they don't have the capacity to, to make the claims. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, um, good. Um, well let's move on, you know, um, so, um, th- 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 this is a very system. I mean, this is a, this is a, a very tight work of philosophy, which means that, um, it's also very systematic and stepwise in a way. So, you know, it uh, it, it, which makes it a real nice read. Um, but it also means that, you know, so there's the the obvious next question, right? So we've we've figured out what epistemic rights are, what makes a right an epistemic right, who can have them, who has them. Um, and now I guess the next natural question uh, is, um, you know, what it means for epistemic rights to be violated um, um, uh, and what does it mean for them um, to be protected? Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um... I, I yeah the I'm glad, yeah, it, I mean I, it makes perfect sense to me that we follow this um this systematic arc, um yeah, which is the one I follow in a bit because yeah, yeah these these questions kind of come naturally to me too. Um, so yeah, an epistemic right is um violated it, I think when any epistemic duties which we've just been talking about uh resulting from that right to perform or not perform, certain actions are unjustifiably disregarded um so putting that into the context of the uh blood sugar example um I've got a right to know my blood sugar levels after being tested for diabetes and if my doctor uh, misinforms me about them for no good reason um, and it's pretty hard to imagine what a good reason would be um then she unjustifiably disregards her duty to provide me with accurate results. And so she violates my right. Um, mm. So I think epistemic rights can be violated in many, many, many different ways. Um, but I think it'd be interesting to look at uh, how that kind of pans out in the world around us. And and for that, I'd take us back to the Purdue Pharma case. Um, sure. So, so if you remember that uh, in 2007, the uh, Purgy Frederick Company, Inc., along with its president, chief legal officer and uh, chief medical officer, were charged with criminal misbranding of the opioid OxyContin after admitting that the drug was marketed, in quotes, with the intent to defraud or mislead, end quote. So Purdue consistently and systematically distorted information about OxyContin, uh, including with respect to its effectiveness, abusability and addictive properties. And as such, the company and its executives unjustifiably disregarded their epistemic duties and in doing so violated their customers and uh, clients' epistemic rights. So I think that several prominent forms of epistemic rights violations can be drawn out from that case. Uh, Firstly, Purdue knowingly propagated falsehoods about the safety profile of OxyContin in order to convince medical professionals that it was safer than other opioids on the market. So, uh, for example, they instructed sales representatives to tell doctors that the risk of addiction, from the drug is less than one percent, when in fact it's much higher. Um, uh, a lawyer, Paul Hanley, in um, 2003 attempted to bring a criminal trial against Purdue, which ultimately settled out side of court. And he um, he wrote in a statement following that: "This is a quote again. These pronouncements about how safe the drug was emanated from the marketing department, not the scientific department." They just made this stuff up. So Purdue knowingly propagated falsehoods regarding the safety profile of OxyContin, and in doing so, they unjustifiably disregarded uh, their epistemic duty. And I think that duty correlates with the epistemic rights of their customers to accurate information about the safety profile of OxyContin. And the propagation of falsehoods is a common form of epistemic rights violation. And then secondly, as well as propagating outright falsehoods, Purdue engaged in extensive misinformation regarding various aspects of OxyContin. For example, um, a key original selling point of OxyContin over other opioids was the time release formula uh, that would allow patients to take the painkiller every 12 hours uh, instead of every eight hours, which is more common. Um, And that would make dosages easier to adhere to because you're not getting up in the night um, or what have you. So Perdue, um was aware uh, in, while issuing that um, claim that not all patients would respond to the timely release formula in the same way, and in particular, an early study of oxycontin, u- oxycontin users in Puerto Rico showed that approximately half of the patients taking the drug required further doses between uh, before the twelve-hour time interval. Um, yeah. So. There were three three, uh, LA Times journalists that were behind a 2016 expose highlighted the damage that could be caused by that improper dosage. And this is another quote uh, from that expose. Oxycontin is a chemical cousin of heroin. And when it doesn't last, patients can experience excruciating symptoms of withdrawal, including an intense craving for the drug. Uh, So nonetheless, Pergy pushed that 12 hour time release formula as a key selling point. Um, misleading both doctors and patients into believing that two doses at 12-hour intervals would be effective for all. So it's kind of a case of knowingly propagating uh, misinformation about the effectiveness of a key element of OxyContin, and that propagation of misinformation is another common form of epistemic rights violation. Um, Thirdly, propagation of misinformation often relies heavily on a policy of withholding information, Uh, which has the effect of distorting one's assessment of the information or the misinformation that's actually made available. So Purdue knowingly withheld uh, some vital information about OxyContin from the outset. Uh, So that Puerto Rican study that I mentioned, um, they never published it, and various evidence that was also um, demonstrating that issue, as well as complaints from prescribing doctors, were um, similarly ignored and suppressed and um, therefore they were knowingly withholding uh, information about the effectiveness of the time release formula and again unjustifiably disregarding their epistemic duty Mm. so then um, a kind of fourth and I think interesting um, additional rights violation that we can see in this case um, was the failure of Purdue to take the results of the study seriously and act accordingly. Um, They failed to take seriously the results of multiple further studies and warnings from numerous other key individuals, including the um, Food and Drugs uh, Administration. Um, So clear evidence um, from multiple studies that OxyContin is required at shorter than 12-hour intervals for many patients was simply ignored and they also failed to run any studies uh, uh, testing the effectiveness of OxyContin at the shorter time intervals um, uh, because obviously that would have undermined their competitive advantage. But by failing to conduct those studies, Purdue unjustifiably disregarded their epistemic duty to seek out vital information about the safety profile um, and addictive properties of OxyContin. Uh, So that's another epistemic rights Violation that correlates with one of those uh, sort of negative epistemic duties that I mentioned earlier. And then uh, I don't know if there's time, but there's a a final kind of widespread form of epistemic rights violation that I just want to highlight, um, which is what I call the abuse of perceived epistemic authority. So I think of this as made possible in any situation where an individual or organization is perceived as an epistemic authority on a given subject. So in other words, where they are perceived as a source of accurate, reliable and relevant information. So the abuse of perceived epistemic authority is made possible by perceived rather than actual epistemic authority. So regardless of whether someone actually has uh, the information or is in fact an authority. And of course, Purdue Pharma is a major global producer of pharmaceuticals can reasonably be perceived as a source of accurate, reliable and relevant information about its own pharmaceutical products, uh, particularly if we've got no knowledge of, for example, the misinformation practices that they systematically employed. Um, So a doctor who's not aware of those practices and is told by a Purdue salesperson that OxyContin has an effective 12-hour time release formula and a risk of addiction at less than 1%, might reasonably and blamelessly form the corresponding false beliefs and prescribe OxyContin on this basis. And like you mentioned earlier, uh, Bob, her patients, being one step further removed, can perceive the doctor as an epistemic authority on which drugs they should take to relieve pain. So the patient can reasonably and blamelessly inherit the doctor's false beliefs regarding OxyContin and act on the basis of those beliefs. So you kind of have two layers of epistemic authority um, in the way of getting to the truth about what you should do with respect to uh, a question as important as what drug you should take to relieve pain. Um, So I think of the abuse of perceived um, epistemic authority as a particularly pernicious um, form of epistemic, rights violation, especially when over-epistemic power dynamics are in play, because a person is obviously more likely to believe information um, on a given subject when it comes from a source that they perceive to be an epistemic authority. Um, And that can lead to a kind of credibility excess, whereby unwarranted credibility is given to information from a perceived epistemic authority, even though it's in fact false or misleading. Um, And so doctors and patients at the sharp end of perjury's manipulative and misleading sales and marketing practices are not only at risk of receiving false misleading and incomplete information about OxyContin, they're also at risk of assigning unwarranted credibility to that information as a result of the abuse of perceived epistemic authority. Um, That's the kind of sweet in a way of just some of the most prominent and I think uh, pernicious forms of epistemic rights violations that um, we can identify in so many different situations, but which come out all in a neat package in the Purdue Pharma case.
1: Right. And one quick question. Do you think, uh, again, just, I don't know why what it suggests about me that uh, in the, in the Pharma case, I'm, I'm thinking about the, um, the way that doctors are um, rendered complicit, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, in in you know, so I, I could just imagine um, a physician um, sort of having trusted uh, the Purdue Pharma rep, uh, you know, d- you know, following what ordinarily would be sort of uh, uh, proper epistemic scruples and um, uh, prescribing. Uh, this drug uh, all in good faith only to find that he had been duped. And the way he had been duped sort of renders him uh, or her uh, complicit in, um, you know, ruining another person's yeah. life, yeah. right? Yeah. That there's, maybe that's not strictly epistemic, but it does seem to me to be part of the, uh, part of the abuse of the authority or the perceived authority it has to do with um, the ability to sort of make others do your bidding.
0: Right, exactly. And I think that's a really kind of crucial point about the relationship between um you know and this is a relationship that is being explored you know in much much more depth and wide-ranging um cases in in epistemology these days but the relationship between you know epistemic states and goods and power really and just how much power you can accrue by uh, manipulating someone's belief system um, by doing any one of the number of things that I've talked about or any other kind of manipulation of information. Um, yeah, I think it's that's a really in, important and interesting way to frame that significant point, which is that, yeah, when we mess with beliefs and belief systems, we exert a type of power and influence that often goes unnoticed and, yeah, and is entirely and Entirely underregulated, in my opinion, um, particularly for example in that case, um, and yet, uh, and yet causes serious harm. Right. So, um,
1: in the interest of time, you know, I want to get to sort of, sort of at least two more things. Um, one is sort of uh, both of which sort of sort of come quickly on the heels of, of the the analysis of epistemic rights violations. Um, one has to do with your analysis of the harms uh, that the violations um, uh, uh, produce or the harms that are constitutive yeah. <laughs> of the violations. Um, and uh, the second sort of closely is how epistemic rights are or can be protected. So um, why don't I sort of ask you to sort of address those two, what seem to me to be pretty closely related parts of your analysis together. Um, so the Uh, uh, you know, what are the harms that we're talking about in epistemic rights violations and how then can the rights be protected?
0: Yeah, great. So um, like you say, I I talk about harms in the book um, in chapter four. um, It's really all about trying to give a kind of taxonomy almost of the different harms and uh, many, many and too many to (laughs) mention um, in, in a kind of Broad overview, I talk about um, a distinction between primary and secondary harms, which I take um, from Miranda Fricker and um, epistemic injustice. Um, mm-hmm. And I talk about kind of primary harms being um, integral to the wrong of the epistemic rights violation, uh, it's kind of what makes it wrong to uh, violate someone's epistemic rights. And I think of those in two forms one, which I call epistemic injury uh and one which i call epistemic insult um epistemic injury can be kind of broadly thought of as injuring someone's um epistemic system if you like giving them false information giving them misleading information making them believe manipulating them into a state where they believe something incorrectly and or or withholding information Um, kind of almost a, a I think there's a close analogy which is why I use injury to a physical um, harm that your Mm -hmm. epistemic system is kind of disrupted and harmed in some way that causes uh, an injury to the system itself and to your belief system itself. And then epistemic insult is uh, a kind of form of primary harm that attaches to uh, that injury and I think is perhaps particularly... Um, an issue in the case of um, yeah uh, abusive perceived epistemic authority for example um, and so I think you can uh, harm individuals in these ways and you can harm communities in these ways and then there's a whole series of um, secondary harms that I um, talk about and I kind of at this point draw on all the different real world cases that I've looked at throughout the book um, which I think illustrate the nature and extent of violations and harms. Um, So those cases range across a wide variety of public and private domains from rights surrounding say freedom of information um, and state-sponsored mass surveillance to um, rights concerning the risks of uh, abortion or of sexually transmitted diseases Um, I talk in quite a bit of detail about um, the case of um, AIDS denialism, Uh, talk about the uh, rights of factory workers to know what harmful chemicals they're exposed to or um, adopted children to know uh, um, who their biological parents are. Uh, These are all kind of versions of epistemic rights that are, to a greater and lesser degree, um, already protected in legal systems, um, but that... uh, result in when the violations take place result in a series of both primary and secondary harms um, which may be epistemic or might well just be practical harms things like um, you know being misled into uh, believing that smoking isn't bad for your lungs in the you know 50s and 60s huge you know equivalent kind of um, types of campaigning to the Purdue Pharma case from the tobacco industry um, that leads people to uh, consume cigarettes in a way that they might not have done otherwise on the basis of the belief that it's not harmful and thereby they end up with serious, potentially fatal harm, um, physical harm. Uh, psychological harm of, for example, addiction um, clearly brings a it psychological harms that can be uh, caused as a result of a fa- faulty belief system like in the Purdue uh, Pharma case, um, and also um, emotional, uh, sexual, and I think financial harms are all um, all in the pot, basically, when it comes to uh, the harms that are caused by epistemic rights violations. Basically, name mm-hmm. a harm, <laughs> and it can right. be the result of an epistemic rights violation. And hopefully in the book, I, I give a clear sense of quite how widespread I think those harms can be. Um, so in terms of protecting them, I, I talk about um, different types of uh, legal protections, di- direct legal protections, which are out there. Uh, and there are some direct legal protections, increasing direct legal protections of epistemic rights where we take you know, the defense of a person's epistemic state to be the actual subject of the legal um, of the law. Uh, In many more cases, I think there are indirect legal protections of epistemic rights. And in that case, I think there's a good reason to ask a question, well, should these indirect protections become direct protections? In other words, should we draw out the epistemic element of this uh, legal, you know, this law, say, and actually treat it as something autonomous in its own right? and establish a case for protecting that thing in and of itself. So, for example, uh, the case of, um, the case of uh, knowing what has happened in a response to um, a human rights atrocity. Uh, you know, there are a tragic, uh, tragic, tragic number of people who, for example, just don't know what has happened to loved ones. And I think there's a really, really good case to be made for not simply regarding that right to know what has happened to loved ones as a sort of subservient to a general procedural justice right, but actually an autonomous right in and of itself. Those people have the right to know and not knowing is a source of genuine, both primary and secondary um, harm. So I think there are some protections. I think the legal protections could be much, 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 more substantive and wide-ranging. Um, there are also moral kind of, but not legal protections where we hold people to account through uh, blaming practices, public shaming practices, and so on. Purdue has been at the end of some of those moral um, moral blame practices, and and I think you know that not all rights need to be protected by legal uh, frameworks, but um, there are good questions to ask around whether some of those. Uh, moral rights that we protect only morally could be protected uh, legally. So that's a kind of broad overview. Um, hopefully yeah, it gives a sense, yeah. Very good. So
1: um, you've been very generous with your time. And so I wanted to just make sure that uh, in in the, in the minutes we have remaining, uh, just to... Um, ask a question about the second bit of of the subtitle of the book uh the why we need them um so you know uh i suppose that uh, listeners of of a certain age uh will remember uh a time in, in my view a, a not very happy time in political philosophy uh where a lot of theorists um were very you know, expressed concerns about rights and talk particularly about talk about rights um that uh, the thought was that um when our social relations are you know, seen as the kind of things that are regulated by rights talk, we've given up on uh, something important about community and uh, human relations and all the rest. Um, now, one strand, a uh, popular strand of that view um, saw one of the um, uh, vulnerabilities of rights talk Um is that it's, you know, it it tended to proliferate that Mm -hmm. more and more, once we start thinking in terms of rights, once we start thinking about our relations in terms of rights, you know, more and more things become governable by rights or analyzable in terms of rights rather than other kinds of moral registers. Um, So you think we need epistemic rights, by the way, you've convinced me. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) for what it's worth, uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the why we need them, why we need to think of the epistemic goods that your analysis um, uh, uh, of rights uh, is is sort of targeted at, why they are the kinds of goods that are best pursued and protected and secured by way of a theory of, of epistemic rights.
0: Yeah, yeah, great. So I guess in some sense that that subtitle um, is really almost designed as a kind of, you know, an indication I'm, I'm aware that there's, you know, there is g- a kind of potential concern about the language of rights and about characterizing things as rights and proliferating uh, rights. Um, and therefore, the book in itself is intended to stand as a kind of answer to the question of why, uh, in this case, and certainly not in all cases, but in this case, we should be using the language of rights. Um, and I think there's I guess three kind of reasons why I think firstly three reasons why I think we should highlight the epistemic de- dimension and treat it as constituting a fully fledged right in and of itself because of course some of the, re- the these rights I've talked about patient rights for example my right to know my blood sugar levels is protected already by me being a patient um but I think we should be treating uh, the epistemic dimension of that right as a right in and of itself. Um, So it's really about identifying epistemic rights as a distinct and unified class of rights. And um, firstly, I think treating epistemic rights in this way effectively names and identifies a feature of our moral landscape. Um, It allows us to more accurately describe and better understand something which I think is very important and very much contained within and influencing our you know moral actions our moral behavior as well as our legal frameworks so i think it simply allows us to name it and see it Um, i think it in doing so it allows us to identify previously unrecognized and underappreciated harms and it puts us in a better position to detect uh, new potential harms in the epistemic domain um, and thirdly, I think it allows for the design of more effective protections against those harms um, in the form of education, regulation, and legislation. Just identifying epistemic rights violations and the harms that are caused by them can allow us to um, uh, start to regulate and start to legislate where we think that doing so is going to protect individuals. Um, but I think the deeper question that you're asking and that you know is important to address is around really why appeal to the language of rights at all? Um why draw on the notion of rights and duties to expose and articulate these epistemic wrongs and harms? Um, what's the language of rights adding? Um, and again, in the first place, I think there's a simple answer, and that's the one that I do try to emphasize throughout the book, which is just that. Epistemic rights are rights um, in the broad sense, um, in the sense that we think of moral, political, and legal rights. Um, so, as such, the language of rights is the only language that actually does the job of accurately describing the phenomenon that I'm interested in. Um, but obviously, it's not without its critics. Um, And so I think there are three good reasons for employing the language of rights beyond the simple fact that it's accurate. Um, So firstly, rights allow for the direction of conduct in a unique and consistent way. Um, They prescribe what we and others can and cannot do because, like I mentioned earlier, they attach to actions, not to objects, right? So it's all about um, essentially determining how we should act in regard of epistemic goods. Uh, And that's a really unique feature of rights talk, um, contrasted with other types of moral um, terms that I think is really worth paying attention to for epistemologists in particular. Um, And then secondly, rights constitute a basis and a mechanism for holding those responsible for harms and wrongs to account on both legal and moral grounds, so those protections that I talked about, as soon as we deploy the language of rights in relation to epistemic goods, we have an immediate familiarity with how to advocate for them, how to you know, do epistemic activism in defence of our rights, how to create legal bases for defending and protecting our rights, um, and so on. And thirdly, the language of rights, I think, for some of these reasons, has a distinctive rhetorical force that when we use it appropriately is invaluable for the advancement and protection of ourselves in our communities, um, and we've seen that through um, rights activism. You know, over the last you know fifty to hundred years, it's been an important feature of um, the social um, and moral progress that we've made. That's absolutely not to say that it's not got issues, there are not problems with rights talk, there definitely are um, but uh, in my view um, uh, and I, I follow Glendon and Glendon on that thinking that it, this isn't, it doesn't mean we should abandon talk of rights, it means we should get much better at identifying them much better at articulating them, much better at um, defending and protecting them in legal context and that's why I think it's really important that we do the work of thinking through epistemic harms and wrongs with the framework of rights in place. That's totally convincing to me. So
1: <laughs> I don't know if that makes it a good answer, but it sounds to me uh, like, like 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 the right kind of answer. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I'm, maybe I'm an easy uh, easy audience for that. Um, uh, so Lani, you know, just thank you so much for, for joining me and, and for talking uh, with me about your book. Thank you. uh, Thanks, listener, for tuning in um, to New Books in Philosophy. Um, We've been talking um, about Lanny Watson's uh, new book, which is called The Right to Know, Epistemic Rights and Why We Need Them. Um, It's just been published with Routledge. Uh, It's really fabulous. And I encourage you to take a look. But for now, uh, thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy. Bye-bye.